Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, you won't get a more fascinating conversation than this. Today, we have Penfold's global marketing boss, Christy Kite, chief winemaker, Peter Gago, and the Australian CEO of Wonderman Thompson, Lee Leggett, talking about their three-year vision to take Penfolds from an Australian and international fine wine brand to a global luxury icon, like a Gucci. It's bold, ambitious, and loaded with insights and learnings around strategy, product and portfolio management, consumer behavior, shifting direct-to-consumer and e-commerce distribution models, long-term brand building, and executional complexity. And of course, it's rare for a brand of Australian provenance to take on the world as a luxury icon. We're also going to find out how the hell you make and market a Penfolds product that's close to $200,000 and who buys it. Yes, it's a real thing. So welcome to you all today. I'm really looking forward to this one. Christy, to you first. Um, You were a one-time Bundaberg rum marketer at Diageo who moved to Penfolds, um, which is part of the listed Treasury Wines Group, I should say, about eight years ago. Let's start straight up about this intriguing ambition that you've all got to move Penfolds right up the food chain to a global luxury icon. First, what is the plan strategically and why the hell are you doing that? Welcome, by the way. Thank you for having me, Paul. It's great to be here. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? From a, a marketer coming into a, a brand like Penfolds, um, normally you'd be sorting out you know, what the key barriers are to success, what's broken. Um, and in the case of Penfolds, actually, it's fundamentally a healthy brand. Um, it's been around for a long time as well established back in 1844, it's 176 years old uh, and really um, an Australian success story. So for us, it's not so much about what to solve for, but more about expanding our thinking. And we've had a few clues along the way um, in speaking to consumers um, as we do um, around how the wine, a luxury wine category actually works. and. You know, products in our range like Grange have given us um, a heads up around wine consumption being more than just a product, but actually an experience, certainly when you're talking about luxury. Um, And for something like a Grange, it's really known for marking the moment. And that uh, is how a consumer feels when they're drinking it. And when we think of it like that, it's about being evocative um, and that's where we start to look at other luxury categories to understand that. Um, and really, um, for us, that's where we start to move from wine thinking to actually transcending the wine category um, to think about this brand as a luxury good in line with, as you were saying before, the Gucci's of the world, Louis Vuitton, um, and other brands like that, that we look to to understand, you know, how do we broaden our consumer base uh, and, you know, how do we solve for uh, these consumers that are seeking a different kind of of wine experience. So that's how we got to it. It's about transcending the wine category um, and providing consumers with uh, new 
experiences. So how crazy did anyone think this idea was when it was first floated? Like, to your point, it wasn't about solving a problem, it was growth and expansion. But was there people looked in, so can we really be a Gucci or Louis Vuitton? Was that was there any debate internally about that? And I'll sort of go to both you and Peter on this, but Christy, you first. Was there much uh, robust discussion about whether this is a reality or could be a reality? I think for most people who have experienced drinking luxury wine or you know, having an experience with their friendship circles, social circles, um, it comes quite naturally when you speak to people about the emotion behind it, the way that you feel when you're drinking this wine, the memory that you are creating. So I, I wouldn't say this was a tough sell at all. And don't forget, we're not walking away from what has made us so successful in the past, which is ultimately the wine, but also, you know, what we call our high-involved wine consumers, which are those who are really into wine. They've got cellars. They spend a lot of money on wine every year and they enjoy drinking it. We we are not walking away from that. We are expanding on it. Um, and I think when you talk um, in that sense, uh, it, it hasn't been a huge stretch uh, for people. Well, Peter, we've heard we've heard the the chief marketer from Penfold's talk. What does the chief winemaker say about this 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 move to, to luxury? I'm stoked to have you on. By the way, very rare breed yourself, so welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, the debate discussion, Penfold's to luxury. Your take on on this trend transition? Look, it's a reasonably sort of natural progression. Uh, for a long time now, we've been globally benchmarking. And we do so in the world of wine via wine scores, third party endorsement and such like. Uh, back in the day, you know, Australian wine was deemed to be lots of fruit, lots of flavour, good value for money, and that's sort of where it ended. But where you start getting perfect scores for wines, and quite often, I can't do it at the moment, but offshore pouring these wines that might be 30, 40, 50, 60 plus years of age, hang on, you know, there's, there is that awareness by the cognoscenti. That translates to all sorts of people at all sorts of different levels. And I must admit, for a long time now, dealing with some people who literally run the country and others, they sort of say to us, well, you know, Australia needs this sort of thing and certainly the world of wine needs this and Penfolds is the ideal candidate. So, you know, we've, we've, we've reached for that to achieve both our aspiration and also sort of propelled a little bit by their best wishes. So natural, whatever natural means, is as natural as it, it feels good, it feels real. So for us, uh, why not go there? And so you, are uh, you being up there with uh, the designers at Louis Vuitton, that's that's going to be impressive. I want to see you do the catwalk, Peter Gago. Let's do that one. <laughs> um, this, this is a global strategy, though. Um, what is happening to consumer wine sensibilities globally and how do they differ um, across international markets? And, and perhaps start with uh, a few of the big shifts that have taken place in the past decade or so and what you expect to take. Uh, expect to happen really in the next two or three. So consumer wine sensibilities, give us the big picture. Well, over the last 10 years, um, you know, the maturity of the world of wine and uh, people drinking all sorts of things, disposable income being what it is, expanding middle classes in different countries. Certainly, you know, even in a country like China, when I started working there over a quarter of a century ago, I was only dealing with the military. Now you deal with everyone. There's a lot of disposable income and a lot of interest. This is a country that loves to eat and drink well. So it's been a natural progression in that part of the world. In the old world, it's not just continental Europe, but the Nordics and other peripheral sort of countries are very much into wine. So I've seen this huge cognitive and uh, 
dare I say, available sort of <laughs> interface growing. And it's been a very natural thing. You know, we often used to say, you know, it's the, you know, golf was the language of business. Well, wine sort of surpassed that now. It's a new language of business. It's, it opens lots of doors. People feel good about it. Banks feel good about it. You know, everyone feels good about it. So I've noticed that whole shift. Wine is not just for the chosen few or the cognoscenti. Wine is something that everyone does. Now, what you then do is you progress it through the different channels, across the different tiers, different price points and that sort of thing. And again, that happens relatively easily. But I think, you know, there is an understanding now of wine being at one end a beverage and at the other end being this aspirational, wonderful thing. And uh, yeah, it shouldn't just be the French. It shouldn't just be, you know, sort of Marchese's in Italy who can chase the finer top end of this. And I think over the last two to three years to your question, uh, now people are looking for diversity, they're looking for points of difference, and that's what we offer. So, you know, very high pointed scored wines, so the quality's there, they are different, and we're giving people choice. So let's go to this really intriguing uh, move for Penfolds to sort of go into to luxury, which is what we've talked about, a luxury icon indeed. What happens uh, in terms of the wine and the range that Penfolds will ultimately be at in what time frame? Is it a, do you, does premium or does, does luxury mean you start at a certain price point? Is it $50, for instance? At the moment, Penfolds is down, you know, you've got $20 bottles of wine and, and, and I think if I can get a Kalimna for 35 or 40, I'm, I think I've done, I've got a deal. So, that, you know, you're sub 50. But um, so what happens to the to the baseline on pricing for, for this new luxury thing for, for, for Penfolds? Uh, and, you know, you talked about the blending or you talked about this 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 this, thing, this whole thing going internationally. Um, you've also got, um, many will be surprised that you've actually planted, Penfolds have planted vineyards in in, uh, in the US and California 20, 20 years ago from, from Barossa Cutting. So there's some really interesting things going on there. Too many questions at once, but start with the pricing, the pricing layers first, Peter. What does pricing and luxury mean in wine? Oh, look, um, you know, the Canunga Hills, which we grew up on, bin 28, bin 389, they provide the, provide the foundation, the legitimacy, the credibility. You know, generations of Australians and other people now in the States and Europe know these wines have grown up with them. So from that, they leap up a level or two. You know, there's this whole pursuit through the tiers. And uh, sometimes, yes, it's about, you know, wines for different occasions. And I hate using the word over-deliver, but we can over-deliver at every level, and that's what we try to do. Now, at the ethereal top upper end, the subliminal sort of floating thing up above, that's what really everyone, myself included, and other wine lovers want. And other people who want to experience something, you know, that money can't buy almost. You know, these these things, these unattainables. Um, so there's a lovely pathway from, you know, every day through to, but over-delivered every day through to the upper, upper, upper end. And I don't think luxury starts at a particular price point. You know, uh, really old vintages of great wines, you know, 1960, 62, 71, bin 389. You know, you could be pouring that at a table of billionaires and they'd all go goo and gar and whatever. So it's not just about the label. It's about the proposition. It's about the placement. The whole sort of, you know, the holistic model is very, very important here. And it's, I guess, I guess it's exactly what the automakers have done, right? So the, the you know, the, the premium or the luxury segment, whether you've got a Mercedes or an Audi, they've gone top, but they're all the way through right down to, you know, entry level as well. But it's got a, it's got a cachet. Is that what we're talking about, about with Penfolds? In a way, 
way, in a way, but if we look at the history of Penfolds, it's always been a top-down approach. You know, in the modern era of Penfolds, Christy mentioned, you know, 176 years of evolution and development here at Penfolds, but in the modern era, we started with Grange, then 707, then 707 followed, then St Henri, and, you know, Canunga Hill only came about in the 70s. So having that top-down sort of thing gives you legitimacy. Unlike many others, we don't work for... 10, 20, 50 years, and then make a reserve wine. We started with the reserve wine. So, you know, it has legitimacy. Right. It's a good point, Paul. Interesting you mentioned automobiles because we've actually had a look at some other luxury wine categories to understand what the shape of the portfolio is. Like, what is, is there a winning formula out there um, in luxury goods that we can work towards? And I think the cars do it, do it really well. Um, one of the biggest things we need watch out on is as we scale and grow um, is that we do it in the right way um, that's that's healthy for the brand um, and Peter's right we, we over deliver at every price point we operate in um, but where uh, we want to grow and what parts of the portfolio are really important and indeed something we've been working with WT on. Well I think I, I want to come back because I do want to see whether there's it sounds to me like are we get is there any portfolio adjustment here or is it going to be what we see now in the Penfolds portfolio remains except that everything becomes lux or is it, nothing's going to go? Or there are a few additives, a few things can we talk about them Christy? You know you mentioned the Californian project earlier Paul you know, it, the cuttings were about 20 years back, but we took a half share in the Geyser Peak Winery in California in 1988, you know, 32 years ago. So this isn't an overnight thing. This is strategic and longer term. But we currently have a wonderful alliance in Champagne. So we're not making Australian sparkling wine. We've released Champagne, the real thing, and that will continue. And uh, maybe Christy might refer to a new wine coming out in the new year from Champagne. You know, whoever thought they'd see Penfolds on a bottle with the word Champagne legally imprinted on the same label. We started, and there's another great example of luxury sort of pursuits, we've started at pricing above Dom Perignon. Now, in the new year, there'll be, dare I say it, Christy, a non-vintage rosé champagne, which is more affordable. But we didn't start off with the affordable, you know, again, adopting to that top-down approach. So yeah, people fascinating. have the, the aspiration, but for the weekend, not the special occasion, they can also reach for something quite luxurious. Uh, we have a project happening in Bordeaux as we speak. This is the next 176 years. So, you know, South Australia will be the epicentre, the nerve centre, you know, our Barossa Valley operations, the McGill Estate Winery, the spiritual home. But instead of going up north and south within the state, or even like with our whites to New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, we will jump across the Atlantic, we'll jump across the Pacific, maintain house style, a bending regimen, but through a different lens that called Penfolds. It's exciting. It's also future-proofing and it's also, you know, climate change being what it is, you need to have that flex. And we can deliver at a truly premium luxury level if we have those different colours to paint with. To Christy and Lee Leggett, uh, we are going to get to all the uh, executional and how to do all this, because it's fascinating talking the strategic part of it, and, and, and we're going to get to what the hell you do or how, the, how you're going to um, execute on this. But I have one final question for Peter, uh, and apologies to the MI3 audience uh, for my indulgence. Not really. But um, can we talk about... Penfolds. Now, I've got to get it right. Is it Ampoule? Oh, the Ampoule. Oh. Ampoule. Yes. Can we talk about that? Am I right in saying it's from the oldest Cabernet vineyards in the world in the Barossa? Absolutely. And sells for circa $200,000 a bottle. Oh, it's not a bottle, 
Right. No, it's 750 mil. It's a, a continuum of borosilicate glass encased in this beautiful glass vestibule with beautiful silversmithing, glasswork. We launched it at the Baccarat Club in Moscow a few years back. Uh, all units were sold. Uh, it has to be opened with a special tungsten scour. This is unique in the world of wine. The French were just, where did this come from? Right. You know, the world of wine looked upon this mystical thing and we've created, in effect, a time capsule. And it is quite evocative and it's a beautiful piece of both art. And at the time, there's a bit of, pre a bit of uh, what shall we say, pressure to put Grange into it. And we thought, no, not the flagship in this. We will put material from the world's oldest continuously producing Cabernet Vineyard, which we own 10 acres of in the Barossa Valley. The original vines produce this exquisite 100-point wine, Block 42 Cabernet, and that's what's in it. So watch the price of that go up over time. And the launch in Moscow was amazing. We had people from around the world there, and was, there was little old Australia, you know, fighting above Fantastic. its weight and releasing uh, above uber luxury. This, it was, I've never experienced anything like and it. And you've sold them, and you, and you can, like, uh, they're, not, they're not every year, I don't think, but... No, you, it's a one-off, the Ampure, because we're ah. creating a true collector's piece. We, we have right. other special offers here and there. And again, that's the thing. If you're offering someone something quite unique, you can't the following year offer something on top of that. You know, maybe right. lower down in tiers, but not at that ultra, ultra top level. Christy, let's get to how you're going to execute on this ambitious, global, iconic brand build. Um, and I think in our earlier conversations, we've talked about it. You've said Penfold's probably perhaps had too, had been too focused down and bottom of the funnel tactics around brand and marketing parlance for those that are probably listening because it's um, it's about wine. Um, that's simply trying to sell product via tactics that try to move, uh, move and get a sale straight away, but doesn't necessarily do much for the brand build. Uh, uh, Christy, you've also so say your advertising communications maybe lacked a bit of the emotive element in the past uh, and that we know from behavioural economics is a much bigger driver of consumer behaviour than the rational. Um, this is all I started, I think it started with a camp out uh, with your marketing agency teams last year. Elaborate on all those questions that I just fired at you and good luck trying to remember them. <laughs> well, I think it all started with this new ambition that we set, which um, was to transcend the wine category. But when we looked at it, we felt that we weren't necessarily delivering to that, um, if the truth be told, in all facets of um, the marketing mix. Now, you've got Peter out there travelling the world, um, talking a lot of the time one-on-one -on -one, um, or with smaller groups of people um, in, a, in a really beautiful, emotive way, um, as you would have heard him talk to today, pouring wines, people are experiencing it. We've got... Um, you know, wine critics writing about it. all of those things work really well. But when it came to other aspects of the marketing mix, our advertising, our in-store communication, how we were showing up even online, um, needed some work. So um, WT being our strategic partners, we actually had a really great session that we set up, which was get all stakeholders in the one room and let's hear what everyone has to say and where we think the work is that needs to be done. And that included winemaking. So Peter was in the room. We had our sales leads from each of our markets around the world. We had our uh, marketing leads. We had Wonderman Thompson uh, representative as well as our CEO um, at the time. And look, we had a great and honest conversation about what was working and what wasn't. One of the clear things that came through was, you know, we are far too focused on the product 
message. Um, you know, what we need was for people to buy into Penfolds as a brand and then decide what product they wanted um, within our stable and our portfolio. So to do that, we needed to build this emotional connection, um, which clearly makes sense uh, with the ambition that we'd set out. Beyond that, getting clearer around our portfolio segments, um, how we want to shape the portfolio. And uh, thirdly, I think another thing that came through was we are no longer a small brand. We are growing up and we need to act like we are a bigger brand. Uh, so that means globally consistent programming, brand building through the right channels consistently across all of our key markets. I mean, we do operate in the big ones around the world, um, a big business in um, Europe, North America, China, Southeast Asia, and of course, through uh, global travel retail. So um, no longer is it acceptable uh, for us to have 25 different campaigns happening around the world simultaneously that work in their own right locally, um, but not necessarily sending that global message of a luxury brand that we're looking for. So it was a great session. And look, it, it led to some great insights um, uh, with WT and, and they did a great job um, helping us um, with some of their other global clients that they have, um, such as Rolex, um, was able to help us really work out um, what our positioning needed to move to. We Again, we had quite a product-focused fo positioning around mastery. Um, we moved that quite quickly to um, unwavering self-belief. The brand, uh, since its origins in 1844, has been about pioneering setting the agenda for the wine category and we really weren't talking to that. So we landed that really quickly in, in a follow-up session with WT and we're able to create a campaign pretty quickly from there and, and here we are today. Still some work to do, there's no doubt about it, but we're, we are much clearer on where we're going. Just give me a sense when you talked about product, um, product messaging. So are you then talking about how the product, the product uh, tasted or, or the, 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 character, the palette characteristics or what do you mean by product and, and what is the big difference now when you talk about um, the, the, brand, the umbrella brand, I guess, um, uh, positioning or if I've got that right? Yeah, uh, previously our campaign, we would have had 10 to 12 product executions that any region would run with, they'd say, I want to focus on three at nine. You'd have a, a short sort of 12 second digital spot that you'd run that would tell the story of three at nine. Um, and then you'd have one for 407, you'd have one for bin 28 and so on and so forth. And the regions would work out uh, what was the most suitable for them to run. Now, that is okay and will get you so far. Um, but when we're considering expanding our consumer base, when we're considering that a lot of our consumers are drinking this wine on a special occasion to mark a moment, um, less about the terroir of the wine and where it's from and actually understanding that um, and more about the positioning of the brand and buying into that, that's, that's where we needed to head. So we created a master brand uh, piece of comms. And that's just launched, right? About uh, August or September? When did it launch? Hello, Paul. Yeah, it launched in um, it launched in September, Paul. Hello, Lee Leggett. So how about we bring you in because you've got some things to say, I'd imagine, uh, given um, there's a, there's a bit going on. Just talk about this this campaign that you've launched. We've seen a glimpse of what is to come from the Penfolds campaign that launched. You're about to tell us when. Um, how how is this going global? Are there tonal nuances and messaging by region? And and how are you doing this globally? Fascinating to get your perspective and also what you learnt from Rolex. 
Well, it is. It's, I mean, it's, a, it's a fascinating category as you're, um, as you're hearing. We've got a brilliant relationship with the guys at Treasury. And, you know, as you've heard from, from KK, we've really worked really closely with them. I think it's a great example of a client and an agency and also, you know, our, our media partner in Mindshare um, and everybody involved in this sitting down and working together. Uh, a high value, I think, placed on the strategic planning process. So the, the, the workshop that KK was talking about was three days long um, and we've got a brilliant team here that have worked on this brand for a long time and so know it well so a really brilliant strategic process that led to this led to this campaign um, as we've talked about you know for, for many years that the work was anchored in more project product-centric communications um, and so the purpose of this uh, of this campaign was to establish a strategic platform for the brand and out of that work, out of those the recommendations that, that came, we presented back to the client team, back to the CEO, but we also took the, the thinking round to the region. So it really got this kind of glo global uh, buy-in and support from the start. What we've, what we've landed on now is a campaign that uh, we've, we've launched with the TV commercial, uh, and that's supported in all the key markets around the world. Uh, that, was, that was launched in September. Uh, but what follows is out of home, print, social, digital, in-store. So it's a really integrated um, body of work, I, I suppose. Um, but there is more to come. We're working on a voice project, um, which sees us pushing into more of a kind of experiential space. Um, and that's really, I think that's really interesting because as the, um, it kind of sets up the brand for voice search and direct to consumer in the future. Obviously retail remains incredibly important, but we know that consumers want to interact with us in different ways. So I think that, that voice piece is a really interesting project too. And yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, getting to a getting to a thought and a and an idea that works globally is is really hard. But I think that's the you know, um, that's the power of a good idea is one that can travel and the one that works in other markets. So that was our challenge, and you know, we've worked really closely with these guys to to deliver it. So it's great work. The global effort is yet to roll out. Is that right? We've seen the Australian version of it, but global's coming. Yeah, it rolls out through well, from from now onwards. So October onwards, um, and and as KK said, it's the start of um, it's the start of this campaign. And obviously, we then do you know individual product campaigns that sit within it. But this is really the master brand uh, setup for what will follow. So. A brilliant project, amazing clients to work with. Obviously, a um, you know a fascinating subject, a great a great client and great products, and how lovely to sit around and talk about wine and then you know do great work on the back of it. Well, that's right, and, and um, I'm slightly jealous, but I can't really do anything about that. Um, master brand campaign, Christy. Um, so you have got. We talked about some of those executions. What else happens though? So you've got the big obvious channels and television and out of home and so forth. What happens underneath that and how nuanced does that get by by regional market? Heavily focused on digital, um, taking that message through. So most of it, um, not most of it, more than ever sits in moving content. Uh, so six seconds um, executions of uh, the campaign. And then you start to move into product at key um, trading times throughout the year. Product messages will, will come through. Um, you know, we're, we're launching into the, the California project in March next year. Uh, so that campaign, uh, master brand campaign, then translates into the California collection. So it works by the virtue of 
get consumers to buy into the brand um, and then key trading times, um, we use product-centric messaging. Got it. Um, so what did Rolex teach you? Was there anything interesting out of that? We looked across uh, a number of different people outside of the wine category. So um, Rolex was one and we, we worked with them elsewhere, but we looked at numbers of people to just really understand uh, you know, what happens in luxury and how you build that story and what those drivers are. So we just looked at other things outside of or other products and other categories. Um, and that was a really interesting start point for that strategic process. Okay, got it. So Peter, was it hard to hear when Christy talked about, you know, we'd been too product focused and I don't mind a little bit of red, so I'm interested in, this, in the product story, where it, your provenance, where it came from, how, what have you. I'm a bit part play now versus um, we're, to take this brand global and to take it luxury. The product story is not as important, but that's your blood. That's on the execution. That you know, these things are a conveyance. The wine is still the wine, the be all and end all. You know, we've often said the wine comes first, and that that will never change. It's just you know how we propel this into markets where we're not quite yet mature, into new markets and such like. So the wine has to be well, borrowing Coke's thing, the real thing, and has to be accoladed and has to be everything and a little bit more. So that will never change. It's just a different way of doing things. You know, for a long time, for example, we had the IP thing of uh, our global recorking clinic program, which took us into many markets around the world. And we've been doing that now for 29 years, hugely successful. We did some collaborative work recently with National Geographic, people loved it, you know. So we've done a lot of that sort of thing, but this is more about a program, as Christy mentioned, that's, that's uniform across the world. So we can't be doing all these little one-off dinners, you know, they're just little dots. We, we need the, you know, the whole sort of tsunami of this sort of endeavour that is consistent, very ultra high quality, and, and that's why, you know, WT is a so good a partner. So the, 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 the feedback, Chrissy has said that, you know, Penfold's got feedback from some of your international partners, I'm not sure which regions, that they wanted to see more than just the product. And, and you would have been picking up this up, I'm assuming, in your travels as well, because you, you get around. So what do they want to see? What do those partners say when we want more than product? Is what you're giving to them now, brand, is that what they're looking for? The, the wine is what we do, but the propulsion, you know, the alliances, and we've done it with the best of the best, Guilty by Association. We've done events with Rolls-Royce, with Bentley, with Ferrari, you know, launches with Aston Martin, who we really, really admire and what they do. And we look at many other global benchmarks of those sorts of things, and we're guilty by association, but we can't just be doing that and that alone. We've got to have our own sort of message, not just, you know, being aligned to someone. So it's a mix of all of that, and Christy's the expert at that sort of thing. And yeah, it's lovely to be just doing something other than pouring a glass. You know, that's the best way to sell a bottle of wine, to pour a glass and say, here, here, here. But you can't do that, you know, times how many billion people are there on the planet? That's right. But in an ideal world, yeah. that's what you would be doing. I think, Paul, um, it's where we were hearing the most noise was from low awareness markets. So, you know, here in Australia, we've got high awareness, people understand the brand, product communication has worked for a long time, but rolling that out into a low awareness region is, you know, not the right way to go about building a brand. And, and that's ultimately what was at the crux of that. We have to do a sort of a three-part series on this one because, um, you know, our time is up. But there is a couple of things. Uh, Christy, Peter, what are the success metrics here? What has the company got on its timeline on this for uh, when you want to see whatever results it tells you 
you're building to this luxury iconic positioning. Both of your perspectives on that would be great. This is a long-term endeavour for us. Um, I know we talked about three years up front, but we've got a 10-year strategy on Penfolds um, that we want to work towards. We need to expand our consumer base, so we are tracking that regularly. Um, We are speaking to consumers regularly to understand what they think of Penfolds um, and and whether we're hitting the mark um, with that. So, you know, for me, um, you know, we'll see it in our numbers, of course, but I think that we'll see it in our consumer numbers um, and particularly in those low awareness markets um, with those numbers growing, I think will be a testament to our success. Peter, what's a timeline and a number that uh, would make you happy? Let's not say it's a reality, would make you happy. Look, we, we, we have the goods, we have the chattels, uh, just a matter of getting it out there. Um, so, yes, it is a longer-term ambition to be where we ultimately want to be, but we have wines under our belt now with decade upon decade of um, runs on the board. So, really, yeah, as quickly as possible would be, would be a wonderful thing. Um, you know, some of these wines go back decades with, you know, really good global sort of recognition. It's just a matter of spreading the word as quickly as we can. Priority markets, uh, Christy, uh, US, China, Europe, I don't know, where, you tell me. Yeah, so China's our biggest growth market. I think everyone's well aware of that who is into wine. Um, and the US, I mean, if you want to be a global luxury icon, you need to be successful in the US. So... Uh, For us, you know, there's only so much Australian wine um, and vineyards that we can source the quality of wine that we're after. So going into the US actually does two great things for us. One, it increases the sourcing availability that we have. Um, And the other thing is, you know, Americans like drinking American wine. Uh, So we're going to be playing in their ballpark. Um, And if you're looking for a more tangible view of what success looks like, we want to see this project be successful. And I think at the heart of what we do, um, and how we go about making wine with our multi-regional sourcing strategy, we believe we can do it. It's been a, a long-term vision. Peter was around. Peter's been on the brand for 30 years. 31. Wow. <laughs> 31. 31. And that, that's, the other, that's the other thing, Paul, that I have to say. I think when you actually step back outside of this campaign and just look at how phenomenal um, this brand and this story is, what a great Australian success story now as we look further afield. So on that basis, I think, you know, just an incredible team doing brilliant work and it's um, it's something we should all be collectively proud of. Indeed. And, it, you know, it's ironically, when after talking to, to, to you, you guys about this, it sort of intuitively makes sense everything you're talking about, right? So make sure you make it work, please, people. We want to see it happen. Hey, um, I just want to finish off Christy with um, a question around uh, you sort of touched on it in the US but e-commerce and direct-to-consumer it's it's you know I think there's some very interesting restrictions or, or, or hurdles about how you go to market in the US um, and that sort of is is kind of got, you've got middlemen and retailers and so forth but beyond that and globally direct-to-consumer everyone's talking about it you're you're you feel that there's some license there for a luxury brand to do that as well what's your thinking yeah uh, I tell you, the wine category has been a laggard in this space. We've been behind the eight ball. Um, I'd say the last two, two to three years, um, you know, online uh, purchasing has grown and it's been hugely accelerated by COVID um, of recent, you know, the last six months. Um, and we need to, to shift with consumer behaviour, of course. Um, but this is really where we have looked outside of the wine category and gone how how are the Gucci's of the world attacking this? Because it's a very big part of their business. Uh, and 
the thing we like about it is you're able to control the consumer experience right through the journey uh, into consumers' homes. Uh, and, you know, we work with our retail partners on this, but um, for us looking at, at this as a Penfolds brand, it's hugely important. And we've actually learned that really well through the last six months where we've worked on our delivery mechanism for Penfolds. So how, it, how consumers feel when they open up their Penfolds package at home we put a bit of investment there and the response has been absolutely phenomenal. So, you know, that alone is a game changer for us. What do we see and when in terms of the headline or the benchmark exercise or the benchmark ex execution on this, Christy? Is it, did you say sometime next year, we'll see a real step up in, the, in your direct-to-consumer offering? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a journey for us. It's something we have been doing for a, a little while. Um, each market is at a different um, phase. I'd say Australia is the most advanced I'd say uh, the US um, and Europe are probably in the early days and China's a different ball game and consumers over there are much more okay with purchasing online. But for us, it, it, we are working at the moment and something that WT uh, will be helping us with is what is the consolidated view? Right, so so many new so many new capabilities required, so much more understanding and, and, and tech yeah. and all sorts of things required, right? It's a brand new world. Uh, I, look, I'm busting you talk more, but I've got to stop. The last question for all of you is, and I'll start with you, Peter, first. Personally, what are the brands you personally rate as a consumer or customer, not a professional, and why? This is you as a consumer. I'll talk proactively, not about wine, because there are some aspirational things there. But I look at something like Dyson, for example, you know, whether it be the, the hair dryers, the vacuum cleaners, whatever, just the aesthetic coupled with the pricing, coupled with the aspirational, the value add, you know, it's been done quite evocatively um, and it's real. And, you know, up it goes, it continues. So innovative, just so many attributes to that brand. Great answer. Christy, brand for you that you personally rate as a consumer or customer? Cliche, but I'm going to say Apple. Yes. You know, my life is more seamless with them in it. That's great. And so your job for me is to make Penfolds more seamless into my life and world. Thank you. There's your big job, Christy. Um, Lee Leggett, what's the brand that you personally rate as a consumer or customer? I'd have to go with Nike. I think the work is phenomenal. Uh, the creative work on, on every channel. Uh, I think they stand for something as they've proven time and time again. Uh, made, you know, brilliant calls on, you know, important cultural uh, issues. I think they're doing really interesting work in, you know, in the retail space, connecting digital and, and retail bricks and mortar, which I think is fascinating to watch how they're, how they're doing that, particularly in the US. Um, and then I, I guess just on the digital piece, you know, the app is, um, you know, the variety of apps and, and digital enhancements that they've built in. So, you know, the Nike running app for me is, is world-class. It absolutely creates an emotional connection for me with the brand. Um, and it gets me out of bed in the morning and, and pounding the streets, which balances out the red wine drunk the night before. So on that basis, um, uh, I think it wins. Ying and yang. You are ying and yang uh, personified, yeah. Hey, Christy Kite, Peter Gago, Lee Leggett, fantastic talking, a really enjoyable conversation, um, insightful, and we uh, look forward to sort of looping back around how this whole strategy goes. And, and go Penfolds, go Global, go Lux, all good. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe, all of you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's moi, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. 
For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.